one of the first things I want to start with is what you called last night when we were talking the new Mariupol. So let's talk about that. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure you have seen the developments in the Donbass region and the fight over what would be Russia's third victory in this war in terms of uh, a city taking that's called Severodonetsk. Um, and it looked initially as if Russian forces were indeed on the verge of uh, um, hoisting a Russian flag over the ruins of that city because that's all what it's all about. It will be the third one in over three months and it's not happening. And it's not happening and it's interesting to step back and just uh, ask ourselves why. So far in over 100 years of this war, uh, we have seen two different wars. You might remember the first month or so of the attempts by Russia to take Kiev and the subsequent uh, pushback against Kiev and also other cities in the north, Chernihiv, Sumy, and so on. Um, this, uh, these battles uh, were close contact battles. So uh, Ukrainians showed uh, superior maneuver, better logistics, and better um, bottom-up initiative. So at least low-level tactical initiative, and they were able to uh, encircle those forces, attack them from the sides, take a lot of POWs. And this is where we learned a lot more about the Russian effort. Subsequently, however, Russians pulled back from the Northern region, and as we know, concentrated their forces in the East in the Donbas region, both the Luhansk Oblast and the, and the Donetsk Oblast, as well as um, partly Kharkiv. In Kharkiv, initially, um, Ukrainians were just as successful pushing back the, the Russian forces back to the, to the border. And what Russians have since done uh, under a new commander, so apparently the commander has changed again, but the, 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 the sort of transformation of the Russian effort came under General Dvornikov, General Dvornikov known as the butcher of Syria, butcher of Aleppo, known for um, crimes against humanity during that war a couple of years ago. Well, he's, he knows exactly what kind of quality of, of, of army he's uh, commanding over. And his approach is completely different. As little direct contact as possible with um, a very committed Ukrainian army, which has a superior resolve, as I mentioned, also superior uh, maneuvering and a lot more firepower. So on that front line, we saw, we've seen just huge firepower, a lot of ammunition used by Russia, probably 300 tons a day going through ammunition, heavy ammunition, including long range. Uh, in Kharkiv, actually the shelling comes from across the border in Russia, which, you know, raises an issue. I mean, the US and UK has just provided longer range uh, rocket systems. Uh, multiple launch rocket systems to Ukraine, however, with the ammunition that cannot fly more than 80 kilometers, even though those systems could provide, uh, could be provided with the ammunition reaching even 300 kilometers. But both London and Washington claim that they wouldn't like Ukrainians to hit targets in Russia proper. Mm -hmm. uh, Ukrainians have their own systems that could reach, called Smirch, exactly those that Russians are using, but they've run out of that ammunition, the Soviet-era designed ammunition. Right. So, uh, what, what is the response of the Ukrainian army? And we see it at several Donetsk because, you know, there's heavy firepower battles are a meat grinder, a lot of losses on both sides, just from the artillery fire and, and rocket fire. And so it's really, I think what has happened in the last couple of days is that, um, Ukrainians, 
basically decided to re-engage in direct combat. Um, so getting closer to the enemy was already entering Severodonetsk and fighting house to house, door to door, yes. which is, you know, a, a terrible thing to happen for either army, even huge losses. Um, and the, but there is a superiority, Ukrainian superiority in this effort. And this is what has probably led to a recovery of parts of that city. Because if you think about it, Russian artillery cannot be engaged at this level of firepower because of risk of friendly fire and their own troops dying from friendly mm -hmm. fire if it's done in the close quarters. So we don't know how long it's going to take, but at least it delays uh, any, any victory, denies Russians the victory. So in a way we can now look at three parts of this campaign. The initial close contact battle that went very badly for the Russians, then the heavy firepower, you know, concentrated in, 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 in limited areas by the Russians where Russians had quite a lot of success. And now a combination of the two and Ukrainians are trying to re-engage of this close contact power. And if it comes to, you know, city battles, uh, then it's, you know, then it's attrition. It might take many months, even years before it's over. And I think it's up to Russia to decide when it's over really, um, because, um, they would have still more ammunition and more cannon fodder if needed to um, pursue this, this campaign. Ukrainian effort, of course, depends on their resolve and depends on the Western uh, deliveries of weaponry, especially heavy weaponry. And that's kind of slow coming right now. Yeah, I was going to say, it seems to me that Ukraine has to keep having victory to keep the West engaged because at some point, I mean, if they lose the engagement of the West, most of the West, because we know that there's, you know, France and Germany and some other countries, um, aren't quite as aligned as we talked about last week, you know, what are the consequences? I assume if Ukraine continues to be victorious, it keeps the West, uh, psyched up and engaged, but what are the consequences when Ukraine begins to look like they're losing some territory? Yeah. I mean, that, you know, it's difficult to predict at what point Russia will be satisfied with a partial gain there, right? And mm -hmm. interested in freezing this conflict until its next chapter during the intervening period, both parts, parties will be trying to rearm and prepare for the next one. Um, this is, it's, 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 it's difficult to say. I think Ukrainians will be preparing some kind of a counter offensive in the South, uh, between Rostov and, and Crimea. Um, the resolve, uh, is not only a problem on the, on the Russian side, you know, the, some of these brigades that have been engaged in the Donbass for over three months have only very recently been rotated after, after some, I wouldn't call it a mutiny, but pretty high level of dissatisfaction that they were just left there to die, you know, on this meat grinder. And you might've noticed that Zelensky himself went twice to the region, yes. once to Kharkiv and then on a trip to Zaporozhye and then Lusychansk, which is very close to the front line in Donbass. And that of course, you know, improves the morale. And if you help these people to rotate back to see their families and, you know, before going back to the front lines, also very helpful. They know that someone takes care of them rather than sending them to, you know, to, to, to hell. Um, yes. it's uh, so, so the issues of resolve, you know, I mean, this is, you know, it's human limits, right? If you live for three months under artillery fire, sometimes longer, because sometimes people had been on that front line for, for, for longer, you know, this is, yes. this is a war of less intensity, lesser intensity that continued for eight years prior to that. So, you know, a lot of veterans there and uh, it's good that there is rotation. It's also good news 
because it means that there are fresh troops. And maybe, I don't have a confirmation, maybe some of those uh, battles in Severodonetsk are actually uh, conducted by those fresh new troops from reconstituted uh, brigades. But just the number of brigades that go in, you know, that's telling me that there's been a lot of uh, losses within each of those, in just terms of human lives or injuries and stuff. It might, it's, it, it might be a topic for another day, but uh, it would be interesting to talk about, maybe we've touched on it, you know, the difference between fighting a war for your homeland, mm. in your homeland, versus fighting a war that's in somebody else's country, and you're not, you don't really have any skin in the game or investment. I mean, I don't want to get into that today, but it, it might be something we talk about next week. I want to change gears and talk about Taiwan and China. and. The question on the table is, how does the U.S. determine where to put its focus right now? What is it more important to the U.S., Russia and Ukraine or China and Taiwan? And who's making those decisions? Mm, okay. I mean, this is, this is a fascinating topic because the issue of Taiwan has come up to the fore since February 24th. You know, I hear yes. it from everywhere, not only here in the United States, people are more aware of the issue, but also Europeans, Asians as well, and Taiwanese themselves. Taiwanese, you know, for 70 years lived in tense peace against China, believing actually in the last couple of decades or years that, you know, kinetic war is not possible and now they see it is possible. Mm -hmm. So it changes a lot, but you're asking about the United States. Uh, so the short answer is Taiwan matters more to the United States than Ukraine. And, uh, here are a couple of reasons. So first we have to ask ourselves who, who we are as a, as a nation, in the United States, every nation has to ask himself, herself, themselves, this question, um, just like we have, you know, our personal identity, there's also a collective identity and it's not necessarily decided, you know, overnight by any ruler. We don't live in that world anymore, but over time it is. And it's, it's, it's not entirely predetermined, but it's influenced by things like geography, of course, the available resources, you know, the partners or, or neighbors that you have, and unlike an individual experience that might be difficult yeah. to change. Um, and then the vision for, for the country, for any country, the vision of their role in, in the region, and of course, for very large countries and empires about the world. And so the United States until 19th century was still a kind of a fledgling power. It still waged a couple of, um, ground wars, you know, at least the war against the UK in 1812, then the Mexican war after Mexico failed to recognize Texan independence. Um, and then the civil war, of course, but, um, something changed towards the end of the 19th century, both in terms of, um, the international situation and the, the theories that kind of followed the, the changes in terms of industrialization and global contacts and so on. And the first, let me start with the former. The former is the war between Spain and the United States of 1898. This was the war in which Spain lost its last colonial possessions, which were uh, Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Philippines. And the U.S. ended up with colonies, not really anything that, you know, had any history in the U.S. It's kind of an uh, unwilling or reluctant colonial power. Mm. With all the externalities from that, not least, you know, the empire of care of Filipino nurses later on in the 20th century, and of course the, the, the Cuban adventures and misadventures that almost happened to be our Algeria on Northern Ireland, luckily it didn't. Um, and Puerto Rico kind of unresolved situation to, to this day, right? With different views of right. what the relationship should be like. 
I, but it, you know, it was a thrust into the oceans on both sides. Um, and, uh, there was a, um, um, professor at former Navy, uh, his name was Alfred Theremin and his view was that, um, the oceans determine the power, the oceans, if you control the oceans, you control the world's flows and for a commercial entity, and let's face it, you know, Anglo-Saxons are pretty good at commercial uh, dealings and entrepreneurships and so on. Americans probably are the, you know, ultimate, uh, symbol and prototypical symbol of entrepreneurship in yes. the world. And so open trade is important and nothing's easier in open trade than to move over the oceans today, you know, on one ship, you can take 24,000, 20 foot containers, right? Try and do it over land. Right. There's going to be 24,000 drivers as opposed to 15 Filipino sailors. So, and, you know, and, and, you know, building the infrastructure on land is, is, is a lot more complex. So Mayan was onto something, but he viewed it not only from perspective of peace, but also war. So a, a maritime power is America was slowly emerging towards the end of 19th century and more so in 20th century would be able to control the important choke points. And you just look at the map of the world and there's plenty of those, not only Panama Canal and Suez Canal, which you know, created by, by human hands, um, but Malacca Straits, you know, in Asia, Hormuz Straits in Persian Gulf, um, the Straits around Taiwan, Miyako Strait in the North and Washi Channel in the South. Uh, Sunda Strait in Indonesia and, and, and many others, you know, in Europe, of course, Gibraltar, Skagarik and Kaptegat that close, uh, off the Baltic Sea, Bosphorus and Dardanella that close off the, the Black Sea. These are key elements. So in most of, most of these are being controlled or supervised by U.S. or U.S. allies. Mm. And so this is really important because in times of war, you favor the movement of your troops, you supervise the neutral ones and you block your enemies. Yes. And. And, and if you look at Taiwan or what it is, you know, Taiwan is absolutely a critical element of what is now the most, um, vibrant part of the global economy, East Asia. Now, Asia had occupied this role long before United States existed, mm -hmm. but then the, 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 the gravity moved towards Western Europe and coincided with all the. European uh, nations uh, discoveries around the world and then industrialization. So for two, about 200 years, Europe was the center of gravity and was important who was in power in Europe and a lot of great wars were, were waged. Right. Uh, but for the last about 20 years, that point of gravity shifted back to Asia. So whoever really controls Asia controls the world. And I'm sorry to say to my European friends, it's Europe is uh, second class power compared to the enormous, you know, industrial and, and commercial prowess of, of Asians, uh, with their huge diversity. But unfortunately, um, that viewpoint of who United States is and what is important, what is important to, to, to control and exercise power of the most dominant, um, uh, part of the world, uh, has to deal with the reality. And the reality is that the second second reason why we are so concerned about that part of the world is our competitive strategy. Yes. Because every nation also will have a competitive strategy because as I mentioned, there are always neighbors or there are allies or, you know, and here, you know, how do you actually deploy a competitive strategy? Well, you have certain resources again, 
you know, geography is one of those. U.S. has particularly uh, advantageous uh, geography. Um, you have um, uh, technology. Uh, you have your economic resources, right? And you have self power, culture, propaganda. You know how you actually project um, ideas to the world and how successful mm -hmm. bring it. And unfortunately. Asia, despite being so vibrant, uh, has also uh, turned towards an ideological foe. And that particularly, of course, is the case of Chinese Communist Party. It doesn't mean that there are no other ideological foes in Asia, you know, from West Asia, let's say Iran to East Asia and North Korea, but they don't pose, you know, a systemic danger to the position of the United States from the perspective of grand vision of the nation that I mentioned. Yes. And so when did that happen? How come, you know, 50 years exactly this last February, since Kissinger's trip to uh, Beijing, we are where we are. Well, we are, or we are because after the collapse of the Soviet Union, we kind of ended up believing that ideologies no longer matter, except it continued to matter for the Chinese Communist Party. And the major mistake that Americans uh, made and Westerners in general is believe that by just introducing elements of market or market economy, to other countries, their statehood will be also magically transformed. For example, democratized. Right. And it never happened. The first, the Chinese Communist Party retained its economic power by controlling the prices of three economic factors, which are land, capital, and labor. And we can go into details about it some other time. And secondly, it has also, since normalization of relations with the United States, obsessed about Taiwan. Even though historically, the claims that Taiwan is somewhat related to China are very flimsy. Um, so we'll spend more time on this in future, but just to remind you, you know, China claims to have about 5,000 years of history. It's probably a couple of thousand lands, but still a pretty long yes. continuity of, of fascinating culture. Um, Taiwan was never really controlled by any Chinese dynasty. It was controlled by Manjurian dynasty that occupied China for about 200 years out of those thousands upon thousands. And it's not very recent. Uh, so Taiwan is becoming this really main object of, well, interest, but things kind of deteriorated, uh, this century first in 2005, uh, China promulgated a new law, which is called anti-secession law. So the de facto independent Taiwan, if it's proclaims of the euro independence, then China gives us some right to, to attack the island. Yes. And then, uh, more broadly, Xi Jinping came to power in 2012. First, he made a couple of speeches you know, to his comrades in the communist party. And then in April, 2013, a very important document was issued for the party, uh, leaders. It's called document number nine. And that exactly explains why the United States is in competition with China, because this is, here's what Xi Jinping said in this document, it has a longer name, something like, uh, information about the current situation of uh, an ideological sphere. And this document defines what are the enemies of Chinese communist party in China. The first enemy is Western constitutional democracy. Okay. And you can make an argument, you know, what is, what is democracy? And of course, Xi Jinping is very good at, or was very good at playing to the needs of the Western audience, not least in 2014, when he went to see Tony Abbott, conservative prime minister of Australia, he mentioned the word 
democracy. And for Abbott, it was like landing on the moon. Well, China is going to have democracy. <laughs> anyway, so this was number one, fighting Western constitutional democracy. Uh, the second thing to fight were universal values. So the concept of universal values that we often use in opposition to regimes such as China is something that's dismissed by China as a sort of a Western isolated insular concept that's not applicable, not only to China anymore, but to the broader world. Meanwhile, PRC, when they became members of the United Nations in 1970s, they actually signed up to the United Nations Charter and the Declaration of Human Rights, hmm. which are universal. But Chinese Communist Party, number two rule is to combat the notion of universal rights. Number three is civil society. Number four is neoliberalism with all of its elements, you know, free uh, prices, uh, free trade, and especially development of capital markets. Something that I think in the last two years, the Chinese leadership has really lived up to, you know, cracking down on capital markets and, and financial capital in general. Uh, another one is um, Western foundations of journalism. And there are two others that are a little more you know, uh, quixotic. The first one is um, attack on nihilism. So what is nihilism? You remember that under Mao and Stalin, there was, a, there, there, there was, you know, strong commonality of purpose in China. And then uh, once Stalin died and three years later, there was a 20th um, Congress of the Communist Party. Nikita Khrushchev had this long, you know, de-Stalinizing speech, and this was very poorly um, received in Beijing under Mao Zedong. And so attacks on Lenin and Stalin are considered nihilism. So you should not undermine the ideological purity of Marxism and communism and Bolshevism because of course it undermines the power as it was the case eventually in Soviet Union. So, you know, nihilism is considered a big potential threat to the communist party's role in China. And uh, one more, uh, was dispel any doubts about the socialist nature of the socialism with Chinese characteristics, which is what the, you know, communists in China called their, their socioeconomic system. So, you know, what it is seven different points, which for the last nine years have been introduced in China. So by saying United States just decides that China is a rival, deprives the Chinese leaderships of agency, right? So our real, for example, about <clears throat> spoke before, um, you know, they, they would view, oh, this is, this is America's fault. You know, Noam Chomsky will say America wants the war, you know, American imperialism. I find it somewhat racist and orientalist, you know, to, uh, deprive the other of agency of determining what their interests are, which communists obviously did very, very clearly. So, you know, this, to this list of segment, of course, comes the idea of national rejuvenation and um, occupation of Taiwan is is an important part. So so we have already two reasons why Taiwan is so important for use for US. First, because of its position as a maritime power and it's a key island and key trade routes around the world. Um, and the secondly, because of its competitive strategy. We're now our competitor is China. So what is the third one? The third one is purely about Taiwan and the importance of Taiwan in comparison to Ukraine. Now, Ukraine is a, a larger country, but let's just compare the two. Of course, one is an island. The other one has access to the sea. Russia is trying to block it from, from access to the Black Sea, but you know, it's an important trading nation as well. But in terms of GDP, 
even though Ukraine is almost twice as large in terms of its population, um, Taiwan is all, over five times as large as Ukraine as an economy. So there's the first thing. Um, but then, you know, there are a lot of similarities. Uh, for example, you'll find, you know, both nations have a colonial past. Um, Ukraine was part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, then part, part of Imperial Russia, then it was dominated by Soviet Union. So there are different, you know, rulers, overlords. In Taiwan's case, it was first Spain, then it was the Netherlands, or actually at some point they were both on both sides of the island. Um, then uh, it was the Manchu dynasty and eventually Japan, right? So for the longest time in the, in the modern era, Taiwan was British. So there's also some similarity. What about statehood? So Ukraine, as we know it now, received the statehood from 1991 towards the end after um, negotiations in Belarus. It's a forest on the border between Belarus and Poland where Boris Yeltsin, Elonid Kravchuk, and Shushkevich for Belarus signed the, you know, the ultimate collapse of the Soviet Union agreement and Ukraine became independent. And shortly after, Leonid Kravchuk became uh, president. So you may say that democracy, electoral democracy in Ukraine almost coincides with its independence. Yeah. Um, but, you know, there was another Ukrainian independence, not so much earlier, early in the 20th century. Um, between 1917 and 1921, um, combated by Moscow, especially by the Bolsheviks, and also with some problems and then alliance with Poland against the Bolsheviks. And, you know, Poland eventually remained an independent country because it beat the, the, the Soviets in the, in the battle of Warsaw in 1920, 21. And then, uh, Ukraine lost its, its bid for independence and right. became largely incorporated into Soviet Union and partly into Poland, the Western Poland. Now, that's interesting. Um, so there was those, you know, uh, period of, of, of statehood. But what about Taiwan? Well, interestingly enough, between those different colonial powers, there was a moment where Taiwan, Taiwan was independent. Not only was it independent in 1895, it was the first republic in Asia. You know, in 19th century, all Asian nations were either kingdoms or empires or whatever. And the first republic was the Republic of Taiwan for a short period of time, crushed by the Japanese, uh, who, you know, established their rule for the next uh, 50 odd years. Uh, so, and then of course, you know, when was Taiwan independent, de facto independent again, shortly after second world war. And we can probably count the moment Chiang Kai-shek escaped from, from China. So he flew from Chengdu, the city in Sichuan province to Taipei. late night. In 50 or late 1949 or early 1950. And so we can probably count Taiwan as an independent, uh, separate entity uh, since then again. Now, statehood is sometimes confused with UN membership, right? So let's compare here. And this is really interesting because most people don't. Um, Ukraine, the Socialist Republic, Soviet Socialist Republic, was a separate member of the United Nations, separate yeah. from the, the Soviet Union as was Belarus. So the three founding members of the Soviet Union who subsequently signed this deal to, to dismember the, the Soviet Union in 91, three of them had separate seats in the UN. So, but of course the Soviet Republic of Ukraine was not an independent country, right? So UN right. has all, you know, funky rules. Um, it gave Soviet Union three votes, right? Instead of one. Right. But Ukraine was the founding member of of uh, the UN, as was Taiwan. Taiwan is Republic of China, ROC, uh, was a founding member 
and a member of the UN Security Council until 1971. And we can go one day because it's a separate, interesting discussion. How come, you know, UN switched uh, from one to another rather than offering two seats, as in the case of Korea or Germany and other divided right. entities? Um, so, so that's that. Um, in terms of, uh, so, you know, if you look at that, you cannot really determine, so, you know, which one is more important to, to the United States, but what's really, what really matters, and this is the third reason why U.S. really, really cares about Taiwan is its current position in the value chains, which is so much more important than Ukraine's. And the main reason is the semiconductor business. Like, I, I just, I just, I just have to make a comment here. Mm -hmm. There's an irony in what you're about to say in that you may not use these words, but you're about to tell us that silicon chips are more important than food. Okay. Uh, you know, not in Gambia. Right. But to us. But to us. To us. Uh, because we are self-sufficient in food. And there's a number of countries, very small number, Argentina, Brazil, probably Australia, Russia, Canada, France, the United States, which are largely self-sufficient in food production. Mm -hmm. It's a small list. It's a, it's a short list. Yes. Um, and for those countries, you know, other things may be more important. Yeah. Definitely for the United States, the semiconductor. Semiconductor, we, we the U.S. was uh, the dominant power in semiconductors in terms of design, in terms of uh, manufacturing, packaging equipment and so on up until 1990s you might remember when you bought your first you know personal computer in the 90s it was always this intel inside right yeah drove you know that was you know this was a big time of you know growth of, of uh, personal electronics like never before um that's that business has kind of bifurcated trifurcated into separate different nodes and the u.s companies in silicon valley are still um the best designers of of semiconductors in the world, NVIDIA and D and many others. Uh, they're also integrated uh, producers that try to do a little bit of everything and they suffer in <laughs> the stock market until this one, one example. And then there are so-called uh, pure fab, so pure fabricators, and there are very few of them and most of them are in Taiwan. Mm -hmm. and, uh, the most important company of all of these is TSMC, Taiwan Semiconductors. And I think until um, Trump, tariffs against China, a few people paid attention to it because TSMC is a B2B business. So you don't, you know, you don't find, you know, it's not Nike, you know, it's not Starbucks, you're not going to see the name written anywhere, but just about Yeah, Let me clarify one thing. Um, when you say B2B, everyone here may not understand that what you're saying is business to business versus business to consumer. Right. Nike's business to consumer. We, the consumers go to a store or go to the Nike website or Foot Locker and we buy a pair of shoes. Business to businesses, businesses buying products from other businesses so they can make final products often for consumers. So most of us don't ever go to a store or a website and buy silicon chips. It's just, it's for businesses to produce something else. That's B2B. Absolutely. But here's how important TSMC is. It's multiples larger than any of the companies you mentioned. And even if you pull them up together, it's a company of half a trillion dollar in market capitalization. Next to Samsung, these are two largest companies on what we still call the emerging markets among top 10 companies in the world. Uh, 
And it's hugely important because of how advanced this production is. So it produces, you know, there are a lot of uh, semiconductor producers in different countries, including in China, but they're not as sophisticated. TSMC currently produces down to five nanometers size uh, chips, and it has uh, a project for 2024 to produce something that will be two nanometers. Well, two nanometers is smaller than human DNA. And this is the first time that it happens that a human can produce something smaller than we are in terms of the component, the subcomponent, sub-subcomponent. And of course, you know, why do we obsess about it? First, because we don't have that production here in, at home. So, you know, TSMC is building its first factory in Arizona right now yeah. to bring something closer to home. I'm mostly investing these days in Taiwan. They also had lower end production in China and used to sell um, semiconductors to China, including high silicon, which is part of Huawei. Uh, and that has been blocked by US sanctions. Um, but it's such a critical element for China's obsession about Taiwan. But just yesterday, I saw on Bloomberg, um, Chen Wenming is a professor from Renmin Dashui, which is People's University in Beijing. And he expressed his view that China should seize TSMC. Mm. Which is really interesting, because what does it mean? You know, if China really wanted to do to Taiwan what Russia is doing to Donbass, you know, nuke it, you know, leave it, yeah. you know, murder 24 million, what they call their brothers and sisters, and just to have it, they probably could do it. They probably could just, you know, leave it in radioactive, you know, haze forever, but it's not going to bring anything, right? They're not going to bring any human capital or any, any productive yeah. capital. And the country, PRC, China, has been trying to copy the success of TSMC for a better part of the last 10 years poaching engineers, you know, lavishing hundred billion dollars of investment. They have not been able to do this, but seizing TSMC or seizing Taiwan, you know, with its entire inventory and technology and, and, and human capital is not that straightforward. Mr. Chen Wenming is probably doesn't really understand how the value chain functions because mm -hmm. if by any chance, this company found itself in the hands of Chinese communists. It will be immediately choked off from components. And in this broader architecture of semiconductor producers, there are equipment producers. And the most important equipment producer is ASML, a company in the Netherlands. The Chinese do not receive any machines from ASML because it's Washington will not allow for this. Only TSMC and Samsung receive those machines. The big snippers yeah. use extreme ultraviolet lithography. Um, so this is. This is something that uses light to transfer um, the circuit uh, onto the wafer bolt from from a mask, right? So that's 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 what it's all about. It's extremely, um, you know, high precision machinery. One stepper costs like hundred fifty billion dollars, right? And so let's assume that China would not only invade Taiwan but also Netherlands. They were trying to obtain these machines. That, yes. You know, even if they invade the Netherlands. I mentioned explaining what EUV is, so extreme uh, ultraviolet lithography, that this design comes from a mask. There are only two places in the world where masks are made, and both are in Japan. One is Hoya, a company in Western Japan, and one is Asahi Glass. So then China would have to invade not only Taiwan and TSMC, but also Netherlands and ASML and a couple of companies in, in Japan. That's how naive the top-down thinking of Chinese communists is but they still try. So this is the third reason, the third reason why for the United States, um, this 
island nation is so important because of its unique uh, intellectual property that is very difficult to replicate. And yet it is connected with the global value chain, like few others. Uh, why? Because, you know, semiconductors are small. So they're every, and they're everywhere. It's fairly ch cheap to movement from, from one place to another. And if China is trying to import anything in it's uh, dual circulation, um, ideology, which is essentially to say, okay, we will export everything and make everybody dependent on our trade account, but we import nothing other than commodities that we cannot produce, right. uh, in, you know, domestically commodities plus semiconductors, right? And that since the Trump administration has become very, very difficult for China. So I have a question for you and you may, you may say that this is a, 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 a bigger question and maybe we should take it up next week. But you said a few minutes ago that, uh, Taiwan semiconductor is building a plant in Arizona. I, I knew that. Um, and when I first heard that, my thought was, is that in a sense, an insurance policy for Taiwan? If, if they're doing some things in Arizona that are essential, but not being duplicated in Taiwan, does that in a sense make it harder or less, less likely or less desirable for China to take over Taiwan semiconductor because there's still an essential piece that's in the U S and there's no way I hope that China is going to invade the U S. Yeah. So, uh, in this piece by Chen Wenming that I mentioned, uh, this was exactly one of the elements. Mm. So he actually, this, this is uncorroborated, but he mentioned that TSMC is building six factories in the United States. This mm. was news to me, but that's what he, what he claims and therefore uh, he's very concerned, just like the Taiwanese public has now slowly shifted away from any idea of linkages to mainland China. Um, the, the, the value chain of Taiwan is increasingly integrated and Taiwanese capital is increasingly integrated into us economy, mm. which is an important part of our own, you know, reindustrialization, uh, project, you know, let's not forget that with the Russia's war. You know, energy prices in other parts of the world are significantly higher now that they're in the United States. It's yeah. very positive uh, for reindustrializing of, of America at the high end. And of course, semiconductors are part of this, as are three other uh, sectors. Four of them were identified very early on by this administration. Um, one was semiconductors, one was pharmaceuticals, of course, okay. after our COVID experience. Uh, one was high capacity batteries, at least for new electrification and one was critical materials. So four, four sectors where us needs to, for strategic reasons and competitive reasons needs to reestablish some form of self-sufficiency. Um, so, you know, high level self-sufficiency, Janet Yellen, um, uh, treasury secretary calls it, um, French shoring. So having things, you know, not only onshore, but also among friends. Remains who's a friend who who's not. Competition in this space uh, for friends is very strong between us and China, China slash Russia. But Taiwan is very firmly on our side. Taiwan voted uh, in favor of sanctions, joined the sanctions, and I think much to um, chagrin of the Chinese Communist Party, Russia listed Taiwan as one of the unfriendly countries. Hmm. That doesn't like when you call the spade the spade, and if you say yes. Taiwan is a country, yeah. Is this a good place for us to, to wrap this up and, and pick it up next week? Uh, yes, uh, sure. I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot more to cover. I think it's, you know, in this, as, as we shift 
slightly to the, to the Eastern or Asian theater, I think it would be really interesting to discuss Russia's position there because we know or suspect we know a lot about China, but there are certain interesting angles, you know, Russians engagement in, in the far East and what it means for Taiwan, what it means for China, what it means for Japan and us in general. Yeah, so so that's, yeah. that's another thing that definitely we should devote some time to.